Many of you will know that I love to ride my bike. I actually, um, that's one of the favorite, my favorite things to do. And so I've taken it upon myself as my fatherly duty to teach my four children how to ride their bikes as well. And I don't believe in training wheels. So that raised the stakes and the intensity of the first few days of learning how to ride a bike for each of the kids. Now, don't think I'm a cruel dad. This actually did work, and they can all ride their bikes well now, just to kind of get to the end. But um, because of that, my kids wouldn't get near the bike when they were learning how to, to ride without being assured that I was holding tightly onto the handlebars and to the seat, or one or the other, as they came up to the bike. And, um, and once they were assured of that, they'd climb on rather fearlessly and, uh, and start riding and pedaling as I ran alongside them in a kind of awkward back-straining position that you do, and I would be very tired and sore. Um, as I did this most recently with Claire, which was actually last fall when she wasn't quite four, um, there would be times when she would get absolutely terrified in the midst of riding along in those early moments, only to look back for just a second and, and regain some assurance as she got the perspective that I was, in fact, holding on to her seat. That then settled her down, obviously, enabled her to keep going and pedaling and practicing and learning um, so that she could keep riding. When she lost perspective that I was holding on, she came to a grinding halt. We're going back to the Psalms tonight, and uh, we were there last week as well, and we're in Psalm 96, which actually for the church is a lot like that moment of looking back for one of my young children as they were learning how to ride the bike. A look over the shoulder that restores our perspective and that reminds us and celebrates the fact that God is there actually holding on and ruling over our world so that we can actually continue moving forward, learning, growing, running, working for God's sake and for his kingdom's sake. So my encouragement is that if you need encouragement tonight to keep growing, to keep moving, to keep uh, following after Jesus, to keep living for him and not for yourself or for the things that the world says are important or that you should spend your time on, then Psalm 96 is actually a really great place to spend some time. It's a great place to turn. And that's what I want to show as we go through it together this evening. What is this psalm, Psalm 96? We read it together uh, left and right side earlier in the service. Uh, it's a summons that begins, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. It's a summons to you and to me. It's a summons to the heavens, to the earth, to the sea, to the fields, to the trees, to all the earth and all the families of the peoples to praise this one God who is king. It's a summons to praise, quite simply, to praise Yahweh, Israel's God. We're told to sing this new song three times, as we just saw in this first two verses. Now, to think about this summons to praise, it helps to understand something of the ancient Near Eastern context in which this psalm would have been read and sung and, and, uh, and used as part of the praise of Israel, God's people. In this context, there was a world, it was a polytheistic context, a world of rival gods. Marduk, Baal, Dagon, Bel, Nebo, Asherah. These gods were in competition in the ancient world with one another and their various adherents would proclaim the praises of their God to declare their God's supremacy and rule over the others. In a sense, the group that made the most noise and had the most praise was lifting their God up higher. Psalm 22.3 actually gives us this, a picture of this when it says that God will be enthroned on the praises of Israel. And that's the kind of idea that as the people of this God praise him, 
that he rises to enthronement over the rest of the gods that are in competition. Uh, many of you will have been to conferences where you have people coming from all across the country and the MC of the conference will say, now if you're here from Florida, you know, shout it out. And if you're here from Tennessee or from Colorado, and then, and then they usually say if you're here from Texas and like half the room goes crazy. Um, and it's that kind of picture of the ancient world that the praise of the particular gods is sort of competing um, for those gods to, to, to make their claim good, that they're really ruling. And the followers would make noise for them. Well, this psalm pictures, instead of a cacophony of different groups or parties or different you know, nations praising their own gods, what this psalm is beautiful in doing in this ancient Near Eastern context is envisioning a moment when all of those rival peoples and rival gods are summoned to praise this one God, Yahweh the God of Israel. Imagine for us for just a moment what it would be like to to have the city of Boston gathering together in Fenway Park. And I don't just mean the churches in Boston, but I mean uh, your neighbors. I mean the people who checked you out at the grocery store last week. Um, The people who operate the tea. The Red Sox players. Marty Walsh. Just fill in the blank. Anybody in the city was gathering together to sing praises to this one God. And then the psalm actually goes further and it gives us that picture of a unanimous kind of praise that all the peoples of the earth would gather together to praise his name. But it also says in verses 11 and 12 at the end of the psalm, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exalt and everything in it. And it's calling all the inanimate parts of creation to join in that worship. So it'd be like we're in Fenway Park and the green monster grows a mouth and starts to kind of shout praises alongside the people and the grass in the outfield starts to dance. That's the picture that you, almost a Narnian picture if you're familiar with Lewis's works. But that picture of all creation resounding with the praises of this one God. That's the picture declared for us here. Now why? So the, the psalm is a summons to praise, but why are we summoned to praise? And the simple answer is given in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord or Yahweh reigns. He's king. He's on the throne. He rules. Not money. Not talent. Not good looks. Not America. Not your pedigree. Not Caesar. Not Baal. Not individual rights. You get the point. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is ruling. He's on the throne. And so we're called, we're summoned multiple times in the psalm to praise him. Now, you can't just make a claim and not substantiate it. So the psalm substantiates the claim of the kingship of Yahweh. And I would give you four different ways. And I'll just give these really quickly. But first, in verse 5, it says, Yahweh made the heavens. That is, he's the creator. There would be nothing. Everybody's got to answer the question of why is there something, not nothing? There'd be nothing if it wasn't for his creative power. In verse 10, it says that the world is established. It shall never be moved. So he's not just the creator, he's the sustainer. He rules over any power that has the ability to destabilize his creation. And he sustains his creation. Third, in verse 2, we're told to declare among, uh, sorry, to, to tell of his salvation from day to day. That is, he's the deliverer. So he's the creator, the sustainer. He's the deliverer. This king as good kings do, has rescued his people. He set them free from their oppressors. We sang a beautiful song about that tonight, about the Exodus, which at the time this psalm was written was the greatest moment of God's salvation in the collective memory of the people of Israel. He's the deliverer. 
And then the fourth thing about substantiating the claim to kingship is in verses 10 and 13, and in that area, at the end of the psalm, he will judge the peoples, the psalm says, with equity. Verse 13, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. That is, he is the restorer of his created order. God will rid the world of all the powers of evil that war against his good creation. Now, we sometimes wrestle when the Psalms tell us to rejoice because God is coming to judge the earth because we tend to think, well, that's all, that's kind of gloomy. But actually, they do rejoice. The the nation of Israel does rejoice because God's coming judgment is actually the fulfillment of all of their hopes that the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who made all the nations and made all the peoples, the God who made the beautiful world in which we live that's been marred by evil and sin is going to come back and put it all back to rights. It's about rectifying what went wrong. It's about making everything that's bad good again. It's about undoing the effects of evil. And so the the Psalms encourage us again and again to praise God for his coming judgment because that's when everything will be put back to rights again. Swords will be beat into plowshares, uh, spears into pruning hooks, The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. These visions will be fulfilled when the Lord, the King, returns and brings his judgment. He'll bring also a rule of righteousness and justice where the strength, the kind of unrestricted strength of the mighty and the powerful will be curbed, will have boundaries put around it in order that the weak and the powerless will be protected. Again, that's what good kings do, certainly from a biblical perspective, is good kings rule in justice and righteousness and mercy so that their subjects, particularly those who have no recourse to making life work for themselves because they've been left out of the power structures of the day, will be protected and defended. If you look at the beginning of Proverbs 30, it teaches this about kings, that that's their job, is to speak for those who can't speak. And Yahweh wants to come and set up a kingdom where the least of these, the left out, won't be exploited and used and spit out, but they'll be protected and upheld. So the psalm summons us to praise because this God is reigning, the sustainer, creator, deliverer, and restorer of all things. And because of the polytheistic context, anytime we're summoned to praise God in the psalms, it's got a bit of a jab to it as well. It's a little bit polemical because of the context. So you see in verse 5, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That's not very subtle. It's very direct. Saying that all these other gods, they're not really gods at all. They're not great. They're not on the throne. They're not ruling as you think they are. There's this great picture in 1 Samuel when the ark of God comes in this one room with this other god and the god keeps falling down day after day to just picture that supremacy of Israel's God. Despite all these other gods' promise, the psalm is saying they can't really save you. They can't create, they can't sustain, they can't deliver, they can't restore. Now, obviously, the psalmist is writing about these ancient gods that we don't really find as much in our cultural context, and most of us aren't tempted to worship those kinds of gods. But we are struggling in our own ways with idolatry in different ways by placing absolute importance, and we do this in really subtle ways, on things like money or liberty or technology or sexuality or power or political processes and so on. Again, these things cannot create, sustain, deliver, or restore. They don't actually lead us into a world of shalom, of peace, and of neighborliness. They actually lead us in a quite opposite direction. When these kinds of things are worshipped with absolute importance, when we give our all to them, 
instead of delivering what they promise on the front end, we actually end up dehumanized and our world ends up far less beautiful than it was before, a place of greed and violence and anxiety and temptation. Uh, Elon Musk, who's the head of SpaceX, Tesla, and uh, what's the other one? Solar City, thank you. Made his fortune in PayPal and then went on to do some pretty interesting things with, uh, with his life that he's doing, I guess. And, and this is what he said to an employee who missed an important work event for the birth of his child. He wrote this email. This is from his biographer, Ashley Vance. Quote, this is Musk. That is no excuse. I'm extremely disappointed. You need to figure out where your priorities are. We're changing the world and changing history. And you either commit or you don't. Now, I don't, I don't know this guy personally, obviously, at all, but get that language. We are changing the world and changing history. That's kind of godlike language about what our ability is as human beings. And in this system, when we are worshiping this kind of innovation, he wants to put a community of people on Mars, um, when the, the idols of technology and influence and success are ruling, apparently, we're all kind of expendable even our newborn children. We can only create a better world when we serve those kinds of idols at the expense of others, at the expense of the less committed, the less focused, the less talented, the less successful. And what's, what's beautiful about the story that we tell from Genesis to Revelation in, um, in the scriptures is that these are the very people that this king that we're worshiping here tonight protects, defends, lifts up, and cares for. And his judgment upon kings throughout the Old Testament is based upon how they deal with these, their lesser important subjects from a worldly perspective. And then is it any surprise that when Jesus comes into the world, Jesus, this king's human embodiment, his son, who does he spend time with? The marginalized the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, not the power brokers, not the money people, not the influencers, but the people who were left out. I think it's astonishing when you look at Psalm 96 and read and and understand, begin to understand it's a summons to praise and praise of this king, that the psalmist actually didn't know the rest of the story when he wrote the psalm. The story of Jesus. He again knew of the great exodus. He knew of the conquest of Canaan. He knew of David's victories over the Philistines and these things. But as the church, we see the fullness of what's given in this psalm. That the Lord is reigning. And He's reigning through His Son, Jesus. It's no surprise that Psalm 96 is read traditionally on Christmas Day in the calendar of the church. Because the church is saying to the world, yeah, Yahweh's reigning and he's reigning through this newborn baby king who in his subsequent life, death, and resurrection reveals to us the salvation and the restoration, the deliverance and the restoring that our God intends to bring to all creation and is now available to all people everywhere. It's no wonder again too that Jesus in his own words as he begins his earthly ministry says repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's rule is coming to be in the world. 
So reading the psalm in the light of Jesus about God's reign, again, it's a summons to praise because Yahweh reigns. And I'm just saying that we now know that Yahweh reigns through the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now as we read it through the lens of Jesus, it ratchets up this exuberant praise of Psalm 96 to literally exponentially, dangerously high levels. Because we see that in Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things would deliver and restore by entering into the mess himself, by descending to our level, taking upon himself our brokenness, our sin, our waywardness, our idolatry, and that we move in the wrong direction, and breaking the power of all of that in the broken body on the cross. So that we could actually get what we ultimately need, which is not what all the other gods promised, but is what this God gives, which is forgiveness, a new heart, cleansing, and the empowerment of God actually in us by his spirit to live now a holy and new life that's consistent with his kingdom of righteousness and justice. This is what he brings to us in his son Jesus. And the resurrection that's at the heart of the Christian church in our faith, this declaration that Jesus didn't stay dead after the cross, but that he rose again three days later, that assures us that in fact God has won the victory and that we have been set free from our greatest enemies who have been defeated. And it's this salvation that evokes our praise in Psalm 96, that God, the crucified God in Christ, is the one who is sitting on the throne who has his hand on the seat post as we're riding through this life. And it's great news that the psalm tells us in verse 10, we are to proclaim among the nations. Say among the nations. Go out and tell it among the nations. The Lord reigns. He's ruling. All right, so having seen that it's a summons to praise, And that this summons to praise is because Yahweh is king and we know he reigns through Jesus. Let me just close by asking the question of what does it do for us now as we praise this king? What what does it do in us when we take up the words and the, the, the summons of Psalm 96 in our own lives? Because here's the reality. We, much like ancient Israel, we live in a polytheistic context where there are many different gods getting lots and lots of airtime and praise alongside our praise of Jesus as king. 2,000 years after Jesus' resurrection, it's very abundantly clear that the reality of his reign does not go unchallenged. Many deny the reign of Jesus, obviously. And they point to real things, the ongoing reality of violence or of world hunger, of children starving to death across the world. To say, look, you say that Jesus reigns, but it really doesn't look like he's on the throne. So I'm thinking this doesn't really make any sense. And we, who do come week after week to take up the call and the summons of Psalm 96 to lift our voices to this king, we feel that opposition, both out there, but to be honest, we feel it on the inside too, just to be real about this for a moment. We don't always feel like praising. We deal with doubts. We deal with discouragement. We deal with the dissonance between our claim that Jesus reigns and the reality of our everyday circumstances, many of which are very difficult and hard in terms of leading us to a place of praise. And that's just a reality that we have to face. And I I would say, just leave it for another sermon, but the summons to exuberant praise in Psalm 96 does need to be balanced in the Psalter by the Psalms of Lament. 
which is one of the beautiful parts of the the Psalms, that they give us language to bring our disappointment and our discouragement and our dissonance before God who does reign and to be honest with him. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross, modeling for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so that needs to be brought into balance to this call of Psalm 96 to praise. But let's ask if we answer the call, what does it bring in us and how does that help us then live? How does it help us keep writing? If you go back to the the early illustration in our lives and why is it critical for us? And here's just three things briefly as we close. First, the actual act of praise. When we praise, when we take these words on our lips is an act of seeding our lives over to the king. That when we take the words of Psalm 96 and we start to exalt God as the one who reigns and we say, you are great, you are beautiful, you have splendor and majesty as Psalm 96 does. It's a way of abandoning ourselves again to his rule and his reign. The actual act of praise is an act of abandonment and of handing control over. Think of it in a way like our praise constructing a canopy over us under which we take refuge in the God who is king. As we raise our hands, some of us, when we worship with music, it's a way of offering our lives in that praise back to the king. In a world where we're constantly tempted to take control, where sometimes it doesn't seem like, God, you're not reigning, so I've got to take it over here. The act of praise puts us back in a place of surrender. Second thing is that praise not only puts us in this place of yielding and surrender, but it becomes also a way of creating and refueling our hope as the people of God in the midst of our exile, in the midst of a world that does raise all kinds of dissonance and lives lives that, that do have lots of things that go on that we don't really understand how they fit with Jesus being king. We know we're in exile. We know things aren't the way that we want them to be. We know the world is broken. But we've been assured in the resurrection that a better world is coming. And so our praise is a way of strengthening our hope in what God will do. Not in our circumstances, which is where we often put our hope. Or in our ability to make things happen by our might or our ingenuity or our wit or whatever. But as we praise Yahweh as king and Jesus as king. It's another way for us to to, to say that this God who has declared his intentions for the world to become beautiful and new. Is the place that I'm putting my hope. And desperately to keep running and riding well, to be faithful witnesses in this world, we've got to be filled with hope. So the act of praise is a way of producing that hope that Hebrews 6 says is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So it doesn't just lead us to yield, it doesn't just recreate our hope, but finally praise also strengthens our resolve to resist the empires of our day and to boldly live in faithfulness to the King. It it galvanizes, if you will, our wills. As we come here week after week and we lift Jesus up, as you do that throughout the day in your own life and you exalt Jesus as king, you're delegitimizing all the claims of the empire of our day. The early bird gets the worm. Might is right. Only the fittest survive. Resources are scarce and you better work hard to get what you can and then keep your fist clenched when you get it. You make your own salvation, etc., etc. Every time you say, Jesus is king, and my hope is in him, and he's great, you're reminding yourself that all those other things that you're told to believe all the time don't, don't pay out. 
And you're strengthening again your will to pursue Jesus and to live faithfully for him in the, in the day today. He's holding the seat, the throne of the cosmos, promising to care for us. What does he say? Look, don't worry about what you're going to eat or wear because I care for you. Your heavenly father knows what you need. So do what? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things because you don't live in a world of scarcity. You live in a world of a creator who's benevolent and good and who loves you and has set a seal upon you in his son Jesus. All these things will be added to you. Go out, be resolved by the power of his spirit now to live for his kingdom and his righteousness. And praise begins to strengthen us to do that in our lives. So yielding hope and a resolve to act. These, I would say, are three things that we need desperately to live faithfully in the world where we are tempted to take control instead of yield, to move to despair instead of hope, and to give up instead of to double down in resolve by the power of the Spirit at work in us. That's one reason, I'll close with this, why the Psalms command us to praise. You'll find the Psalter isn't really into our feelings quite as much. He doesn't say, hey, praise when you feel like praising. But it's a command to praise. It's a summons to praise. And I think it's because the psalmist knows and God knows through his word that when we do take up the call, when we come and begin to worship, even when we don't feel like it, that it begins to do these works in us of yielding and hope and strengthening our resolve to live faithfully to this king. So Psalm 96 is a reminder that Jesus is on the throne. That you don't have to fear and be afraid. So I want to encourage us to lift up our heads, to exalt Jesus as our King, and to praise Him with all of our lives because He is committed to us. And He's shown that commitment most of all through His death on the cross. He's holding on to us tightly. Look back over your shoulder. See that He's there. And run after him. Amen.